I don't think there can be many cities in the world that um, uh, owe more to the knowledge industry than Oxford. Um, And so I don't think there are many cities in the world for which 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 is more potent. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge, says the Apostle Paul, puffs up. But love builds up. Imagine, imagine the Apostle Paul, he arrives in, uh, in Oxford, he uh, goes to um, um, uh, St Mary the Virgin Church up there on the, on the high um, and he stands up to preach and he says, this is my text for the day. It would go down like a pork chop in a bar mitzvah, wouldn't it? Um, it's, it's like sort of tossing a theological match into a Christian haystack and yet that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing. As he writes this letter to Corinth, it has incendiary power in Corinth and I want it to have incendiary power amongst us this morning in Oxford. I want to unpack it then. As I've already said, we have been slowly working through 1 Corinthians in, uh, in bite-sized pieces and uh, you can, I think, get all the sermons in the, uh, from the past on the website if you're interested to catch up uh, in that way. Um, but here we are, back at Paul's letter to Corinth. Corinth was an absolutely fascinating city. It was a, a vibrant young city, a Roman port on an isthmus. There's a a map between the Greek mainland and the uh, Peloponnese. And because it was a a vibrant port, it was multi-ethnic, people from all over the world gathered there. It had massive inequalities between rich and poor. There were rich merchants in their villas and there were poor um, dock hands um, living in poverty. And actually it was full of artistic and intellectual glory as well as masses of sordid prostitution. The, the, the intellectual stuff came not so much from the fact that it was a port city as it was the city that hosted the Isthmian Games. And the Isthmian Games were just sort of one rung down from the Olympic Games. And in those days the, the, the Games, unlike our present um, gatherings um, of uh, of that kind. Not only had people running and jumping and um, uh, fighting, but they also had uh, poetry competitions and music competitions. And so, as a result of that, um, Corinth had become a, 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 a place where all the intellectuals loved to gather. It was the place where you strutted your intellectual stuff. So in Oxford, the um, second most multi-ethnic city in the southwest, so the statisticians, uh, southeast, sorry, so the statisticians tell us, one of the cities with the greatest gap actually between rich and poor or uh, the city with the joint most prestigious university outside of America in the whole world. Did you know that? 
Well, joint with Cambridge, I'm very glad to say. Martin and I are pleased about that. I can see him chuckling. But an impressive university, uh, none, nonetheless. Now, in, in a church such as ours, that sits in that city, more than that, whose church building is on the, uh, on the street where a large proportion of the prostitution in the city happens, we can expect this letter to have some impact on us. We can expect this letter to have something to say to us. Oxford and Corinth are both glorious and sordid, rich and poor, mixed, good and evil. They're very similar. So Paul is making a very important statement when he says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Before we examine that in some depth though, I want us to understand the situation that pertained in, um, uh, in Corinth which led to that statement. The situation um, is at the same time relatively simple and yet culturally very distant in some ways. In Corinth there were lots of pagan temples and in most of those temples there was animals and sometimes other food that was, was, was sacrificed or offered to idols as part of their worship. And then the food would be either eaten on the temple premises or sometimes just sold in the marketplace. And the question for those Christians is how, how do you deal with that food? And a proportion of the church, mainly it seems the well-educated, wealthy, theologically able people, they were entirely relaxed about it. They reasoned, um, uh, as Paul quotes them as saying in verse, uh, verse 4, an idol is nothing at all. So they bought food in the marketplace, not worrying whether it had been uh, associated with uh, pagan worship. And uh, more than that, actually they seem to have done their business deals within the temple premises, sometimes at meals where um, uh, this food was eaten actually in a temple. Because frankly, if you were a wealthy businessman in those days, you couldn't do business unless you were prepared to go and meet and greet the right people in the temple. Idols, nothing, they said. Um, We don't need to worry about it. There is no God but one. Even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are indeed many gods and lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, for whom we live. There is but one Lord Jesus Christ, from whom all things came, through whom we live. So why should we be worried about idols? And Paul says that's exactly right. Idols are nothing. But, he says, there's something else important to consider. Not everyone knows that. Some people, whether they are former pagans who were still in in the thrall of these gods to a certain extent, or perhaps they were Jews whose, whose foundational history was built on avoiding uh, idolatry, some people were deeply worried about these idols. 
They didn't have the sophisticated knowledge of the first group. Verse 7, but not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Paul acknowledges, you see, these people have weaker consciences. In a sense, they, they do not need to be worried. The fact that they're worried is an indication that they don't really quite understand Christian doctrine in its full depth, in the full liberty that it gives. Their consciences are weak. But he says, that means we're all the more careful in handling such people. Because your conscience is perhaps the most important thing about you. Even if we're doing something which formally is okay, if we believe that it is not okay, then our conscience becomes defiled. If our conscience becomes defiled, we are willingly saying, I, I am going to disobey God. That is really, really important. So, says the Apostle Paul, in the presence of such weak people, we need to be careful how we use our knowledge. Verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. The weak who might act against their conscience. Verse 10, For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't you be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? Verse 11, So this, so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Do you see that? Massively strong word. This brother is destroyed by your knowledge. No matter whether what they did was formally right or wrong, the fact that they thought it was wrong and you tempted them to do it while still thinking it was wrong destroyed them, says Paul. That's a great sin. It's a sin, says Paul, against Christ. Because this is the brother for whom Christ died. So we should be very careful how we exercise legitimate freedoms. Verse 13, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not call him to fall. And that's the, that's the situation in Corinth. And of course, Tesco's is not in the habit of selling meat that was sacrificed to pagan, um, uh, in pagan temples, at least not as far as I'm aware. Um, uh, in our multi multicultural society, frankly, sometimes we do have to deal with delicate issues associated with non-Christian places of worship. And we do need to, be, uh, to hold in balance sometimes the freedom that we have to go anywhere we like. Jesus is Lord of everything. 
and the limitation that we should voluntarily put on ourselves of not giving people the wrong impression. Woe betide me if with my Sikh friends, for instance, when I go into their Gurdwara, I give the impression that it means nothing whether you're a Sikh or a Christian. It's a difficult balance to, to, to make and in our multicultural society sometimes we have to do some careful thinking. These issues though also apply on inter, inter-church matters. And some years ago, for instance, we deliberated about being involved in the National Alpha Initiative. Now, now the Alpha course is, is, a, is a great course. I would happily run it in Maudlin Road. We might run it in, in the future. That's, that's not at all uh, a problem. Um, but the National Alpha Initiative, that, um, as, it, as it was in, in, in years gone by at least, involved signing up to common publicity with a whole range of different churches. Now, if you know me, you know that, that I personally have got wide friendships across different denominations. I count church leaders from quite different um, uh, backgrounds as, as, uh, as personal friends of mine. And also, I'm deeply aware that in all sorts of Christian traditions, there are born-again believers. You know, we, we, we know them, we meet them. But, with the best will in the world, we have to honestly say that some Christian traditions really don't teach the Gospel as the Bible would explain it. We had to take the view, for instance, that we couldn't in good conscience as a church advertise just alongside uh, a Catholic church, for instance, that where there might be great people in it, but institutionally that church is committed to doctrines about salvation which are really quite different from what the Bible says. The Bible says very clearly we are saved through personal faith in Jesus Christ. And historically the Catholic Church has always stood against that. And we couldn't in good conscience give the impression that we thought, particularly to a, to a, to, to, to a spiritual seeker who doesn't understand the ins and outs of these things, we couldn't give the impression that it mattered not whether you went to an Alpha course in a standard Catholic Church or in an Evangelical one. Similarly with liberal uh, liberal churches who don't fundamentally believe in the virgin birth in that Jesus Christ was God made flesh in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Central biblical truths, they matter. And I would go to those churches if, there were, if the necessity arose, just personally, privately, I, I could sift out the good things, get the good things from them, leave the, leave the dross aside. Jesus is my Lord and there are lots of good things happening in those churches. I don't doubt it. But we must take seriously the danger 
of leading people to think that there's, there's no difference. It matters. Imagine that I met Jesus Christ on the last day. And he said, by your cavalier attitude, Peter, you destroyed that person who was searching. You enabled them to be led astray. I says, Paul, do anything you can to avoid that. To avoid leading the weak astray. Or we could talk about more personal issues, couldn't we? There are so many applications of this. What about the films that you watch? Yeah, that, that film that you watch may not have led you astray. You may be um, relatively inured to relatively sexually explicit films. You may be a happily married um, man who has uh, happy sexual um, uh, fulfilment in marriage and that just doesn't worry you. But do you, by watching that film, lead someone astray who is much more vulnerable than you? You must care for the weak, says Paul. Or uh, women, as summer approaches. You know, it's lovely to wear pretty clothes. Absolutely lovely. I 100% support it. It's great to look pretty. But do you consider the effect that you have on young men. It is absolutely your right to wear pretty clothes. But verse 9, be careful, how that, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. I'm not advocating looking dowdy. But I am saying that actually there's a balance, isn't there? We could talk about so many issues. It is so fundamental often to the, to the decisions that we make about how to behave. This balance between the liberty that God gives us and wisdom about how we use it to care for the weak in particular. But I want us to actually look at the real issue, at least as uh, I understand the Apostle in this chapter. The fundamental, the core issue. It is about the relationship between knowledge and love. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up. But love builds up, he says. He's a very, very visual um, language to describe the role of knowledge. NIV's translated it very well, puffs up. And the English language just is full of idioms that have that same idea, idea isn't it? You know, knowledge makes you full of hot air. Knowledge creates windbags. You know, knowledge produces stuffed shirts. 
Paul is not intrinsically anti-knowledge. We must be clear about that. He explicitly says in this chapter that he approves of the profound theological knowledge that those stronger Corinthians have. But he is, uh, and, and in that approval, he's actually quietly critical of those who do not have that knowledge, who have not availed themselves of that knowledge. It is not a compliment to those believers who don't really understand what's going on to call them weaker, alright? He wants all Christians to be strong in their understanding. I wouldn't want this chapter to be read as if it was a justification for a sort of for, for, for ignorance. John Calvin comments on the, um, actually how uh, railing against learning is really another form of pride. He says they burst with pride these people to such an extent as to verify the old proverb: nothing is so arrogant as ignorance. He's right. Okay? Paul is not anti-knowledge. But he does say, treat it with caution. It has a dark side. It is the opposite, in some ways, of love. It is opposite in what it does. Knowledge puffs us up. Whereas love builds other people up. And it is opposite in, in, in who it's directed to. Knowledge, is, uh, knowledge actually does something to me. Whereas love always is thinking about the other person, what can be done to the other person. I am puffed up. Or they are built up. That's the antithesis he sets up. Verses 2 and 3 of the, uh, at the beginning there, I think, are there to, to take us a little bit deeper into this difference between the, the knowledge person and the love person. At root, he says, at root, the knowledge person, when they lie down in their bed, when they, when they stop and think, what they think is, I know. Verse 2. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. Knowledge was not simply meant to make me feel good about what I know. To make me think, ah, oh, I know now. It was meant to help us to live better lives. To live lives for others, not least. And he says in verse 3, the love person, what do they think when they settle down at the end of the day? The love person, he says, thinks something quite different. The man who loves God is known by God. He's, 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 twisted his, he's twisted his categories here in two distinct ways. He was talking about love for other people just a moment ago. Now he's talking about love for God. In other words, the love person, when they sit down at the, other, uh, at the end of the day, says, I love God. That is the root of my motivation. From that, from that love of God, flows all other things. 
And the love person, when, they do, when their mind does go to knowledge, goes in a different direction, says Paul. It doesn't go in the direction of, ah, oh, these are the things I know. It goes in the direction of, God knows me. God has a relationship with me. They're quite different, you see, he says. The one person is puffed up with, I know. And the other person has found deep contentment in the love of God and God's knowledge of them. No self-congratulation at all. Simply contentment. So now then, after the specifics, let's dig deeper with the Apostle Paul and, uh, and ask what's going on in our own hearts. Because, you see, in a city like Oxford, in a city like Corinth, knowledge is a hot-button topic. And it's not just the academically well-trained for whom it's a hot-button topic. There is a proportion of people, I'm sure, here who read Knowledge Puffs Up and they say, too right, Paul, all of those cocky, bright graduates in this church, they need to hear that and I'll sit back and let Peter Comont preach it to me. I, on the other hand, have learned in the university of life. It is not just academic knowledge that puffs us up, you see. It is anyone who in the end, at the end of the day, says, I know, and they don't. Older Christians here. Do you look at those bright young things, and for whatever reasons, do you puff yourself up like that? Do you say to yourself, give them a few years, give them a decade or two then they'll realise how little they know. But I know. It's penetrating stuff in an environment like this. Or what about our attitude to our skills? I don't know how often I have heard people, actually as they, as they get older and they, they, they learn greater leadership skills of one sort or another, all sorts of life skills, that they, that they look, look at the church and they disparage the, the, the haphazard way that the church organises itself or the, or the, or the, you know, the, 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 the unskilled way that other people uh, live. And they, they sit there and they say, oh, I know. It's another way to live, says Paul. Older Christians who do have more life experience than younger people. Why don't you look at those younger people and say, how can I build them up? How can I let them gain from the knowledge that I have and the experience that I have? How can I help them to grow into the mature person that they, they are? People who've gained skills in, in your life. And why not think, how can I 
impart those skills. Use those skills in the life of the church. Use the skills that I've got to build other people up. It is not just academic knowledge, you see. It is anyone who says to themselves, I know. And then, of course, most obviously, and that's why I've left it to last, there is academic knowledge. this, This church is full of academically able people. And you too can use that intellectual ability that you have in two distinct ways. You can say, this is for me. It is for my promotion, my satisfaction, my prestige, my inner contentment, my well-being, my sense that I'm a little bit better than the next person. Or you can use it for others. For their joy, their strengthening, for them to be built up. We can be builders or we can be windbags. Many years ago I read the autobiography of Bertrand Russell. He was a famous atheist of of the 20th century. And in the introduction to his autobiography he wrote this. Three passions, he said, simple but overwhelmingly strong, have governed my life. The longing for love, the search for knowledge, and unbearable pity for the suffering of mankind. Bertrand Russell was a self-serving windbag par excellence. Frankly, he impressed a lot of people in his day. But actually, his longing for love led him to multiple sexual infidelities and actually destroyed more than one woman in the way that he treated them. You could add add to that the 20th century philosopher A.J. Eyre, whose his ideas ruled Oxford University at one point and still are deeply significant. But actually, since his death, as the sordid details of his private life have slowly leaked out, his philosophy has come increasingly to look like just a vast justification for his own personal depravity. A number of years ago, a a journalist called Paul Johnson wrote a a book entitled The Intellectuals. He said in the introduction, my simple message is this, beware intellectuals. Now, Paul doesn't say that. He does not say that. Knowledge is good, he says, but dangerous. He says to those massively able people in Corinth, and he says the massively able people here, will you use those gifts to puff yourself up or to build other people up? Will you be obsessed by knowing or obsessed by loving? Will you use your knowledge to to bless or to destroy, he says. It is your choice. You who know have that choice. At the end of my life, you know, I do not want to lie on my deathbed and think to myself, 
I know things. To puff myself up with a last, a last puff of the bellows before I am eternally deflated. I want to be lying there in the presence of God saying, God loves me. God knows me. And God in his grace and his goodness has taught me to love and to use what abilities I have, albeit imperfectly, to build others up. Will you love?